This is Boom Goddess Radio, igniting inspiration in the boomer generation. We are Jennifer Davis-Page, B.B. Peters, and Dr. Andrea Gold. In this episode, we talk to Dr. Greg Petersburg, a most fascinating doctor with an amazing theme around the idea of proactive aging. Of course, what does proactive aging mean to all of us? And have you ever wondered about the best ways to take care of yourself and remain as healthy and vibrant as possible? What is the magic formula for aligning your body and mind and staying vital? And most important, does it work the same way for everyone? Welcome, Dr. Petersburg. We are so delighted that you're here. And we're going to call you Dr. Greg because we've gotten to know you a little bit now and we feel very close to you and are very inspired by all that you offer. Welcome. We're so excited. Thank you. I'm equally delighted to be here with um, the energy that both of you emanate. On the way here, I was thinking of the actual title for this episode, and it occurred to me that we may want to call it Inspired Living, uh, and not aging, because you are not about aging, you're about living. But let's just talk a little bit about your background, your history. Where do you come from? How did you arrive at this point in life? Tell us more about yourself. Well, uh, let me start by telling you a real brief story. Um, I just returned from visiting my parents for a week. They're both 93 years old. They live independently. And here I am at the age of uh, nearly 68. And one would think that um, you, you should know it by now, that you should have it together. And the week I spend with my parents always reminds me that um, there's more to learn, there's more out of life. And as ironic as it may seem, if I can in one way or another emulate my parents, I cannot wait until I'm 93 years old. How fantastic, how fantastic that you speak to that. The other day I heard a quote from Rita Marino, who's 86, and she said, I love this life so much. Isn't that the goal? Right. Um, you know, I started out in medicine um, in a very traditional manner and uh, spent uh, 23 years in a primary care practice, which I loved dearly, and also as an emergency room physician. So I had an opportunity to see folks um, at the very beginning of life, delivering babies, and at the very end. But after about... 12 years or so, my light bulb began to turn on in my, in my brain saying, you know, almost everyone that I was seeing would not have to be here had they made different choices. And it dawned on me that I had been trained to be a sick care practitioner, waiting for things to go wrong. In fact, encouraging the public to not call me until you have a problem. And that, um, that didn't sit well, and my paradigm began to slowly change in the 1980s. And I started a long, slow, a rough journey to 
realized that uh, what I was meant to be was a um, healthcare practitioner, an upstream practitioner. And that's where the last 15 years I've uh, set up my camp. And I choose to work with um, adults who are serious about aspiring to live the life they've imagined. I love how you say on your website that we do not exist to find ourselves. We exist to create ourselves. To me, that touches me at the deepest core of who I am as a woman, as a person, um, and as part of Boom Goddess Radio. It's about creating all the time. That's what we talk about all the time, right? That's what we're about, and we were so excited when we sat and spoke with you about the role of creating, of aspiration, in terms of creating our destiny, our health destiny, as you call it. Right. You know, um, the act of creation can only occur in one time and place, the here and the now. And it turns out that the here and the now, being present with ourselves, is one of the healthiest things that we can do. As the Buddha said, you know, that um, the healthiest place for our mind and our body is not to be um, worrying and fretting about the past or anticipating problems in the future, but to live wisely and earnestly in the present moment. The act of um, nurturing our creative nature is one way to to bring us into the present. But it's also part of um, helping each one of us become who we are, uh, the act of becoming, which uh, led to the name of, of my practice, Renaissance, which is an awakening, a becoming, a renewal. Let's talk about the importance of relationship. And I wanted to ask you what your stance is, Greg, on the doctor-patient relationship and how you inspire responsibility in your patients to take hold of their health destiny. Well, the truth is that um, each one of us uh, can do more for ourselves than a physician can. We have the ability to uh, make the choices that are going to make or break our our future for us. As a physician, um, I was initially trained to believe that I was the only one who could know not only what was wrong, but how to correct or fix the problem. What I've learned over the years, and quite frankly, many of my folks I've had the privilege to work with, patients have taught me otherwise, that while I may be an expert in some ways about health and wellness, my patients are experts on themselves and their life and their narrative their illness narrative in many cases. To the extent that um, we can tap into that mutual collective expertise, um, everybody wins. And furthermore, everyone comes with our own belief systems, our, our own you know, mental maps uh, of things, which are oftentimes a little muddied with generalizations and distortions and deletions. And it's important for me as a practitioner to respect and honor that narrative. Although in some cases, my job might be as a guide to help them to perhaps rewrite their story so that it has a, a better ending. You know, the old saying that um, we can't go back and make a new beginning, but we can begin today to make a new ending. When you meet someone for the first time, 
when they come to see you for their initial contact with you, how how is it that you um, create the atmosphere that would lead to um, the patient or the person taking responsibility and being able to acknowledge just what you say and what you believe about the power being within that client or that patient? Well, that's an interesting question. Um, and to answer that, let me go back about 15, 16 years. When I decided I needed to move from downstream to upstream, I knew that everything had to change. And one of those um, changes was to, in, in a sense, invite the patient to tell me how my business should be designed and operated. So if I took a magic wand and said, what would a patient want when they pick up the phone, they would prefer to talk directly to the person that they're hoping to speak with, the physician, not a receptionist. When they walk into the facility, they don't want to sit for 32 minutes. They would like to be greeted and seen that moment. When they're in the room with their practitioner, they don't want that time to end at 12 minutes or after the first complaints ended. They want to be able to tell the doctor, doctor, sit down. I'm not finished yet. And when you go through that whole list, it's a pretty long one, by the way. Um, it, it, it makes a very, very strong point about everything that you thought you knew about practicing medicine um, was part of the problem. And that had to change. So there is no waiting room because there's no wait. Um, my patients know ahead of time that the length of our time together is entirely up to them. We set out on a mutual agenda. What's on your table today? What's, what's a, you know, medicine by the language we use limits it. We talk about the quote chief complaint, which means one thing. So the, the old, um, it's kind of a sad joke, but uh, if a doctor would really like to kind of indirectly know what those other issues are, because most people come with two or three, is you stand up and you put your hand on the doorknob like you're leaving, and then the patient says, by the way, there's two or three other things I want to talk about. <laughs> and then we say, oh, well, maybe better make another appointment. That's what happens. That is personally, but I have experienced myself. And sometimes you go in with more than one or two, maybe three, five, or seven, and they're not all huge things, but you want to have the opportunity to speak with uh, the uh, individual who's helping you to understand the whole picture. But if it's only top three things, well, we didn't even get to number four yet. And they're all interrelated. Of course. And so um, Dr. Greg is talking about creating a an atmosphere. A space, right? It's right? like just giving this person a space. Here's the room. Here's for you. Here's the space. It's so amazing. So that's one of the things that you do in your practice. And I'm such a list person, you know, I just like want to get, okay, what are the four things that we can be doing right now to stay uh, proactively, to be proactively aging, to be youthful? Uh, and then we can just kind of delve um, into them. But what are the top four things? Oh, let's think about that. And let's have our listeners be thinking about oh, that. Oh, fantastic. While they pour themselves a cold drink. Yes. Or hold a warm cup of something delicious and we'll be back. Perfect.
Like we're fond of saying, your participation powers our programming. What are your questions about handling your own health or your relationship with your doctors and your self-care? Let us hear from you at info at boomgoddess.com. We're back with Dr. Greg Petersburg, and we're talking about the concept of proactive aging and lists of things that we can do right now to stay healthy, strong, vital. But Dr. Greg, can you just begin a little bit about the concept of proactive aging? How would you define that? Well, somebody said once a long time ago that um, we don't grow old, but when we stop growing, we become old. And I think it, it, it really summarizes to yes. a, a large degree what, it, what it's all about is um, it's always making a commitment. If there's one word I guess I could use, it would be commitment, a promise. Today, I'm going to make a choice about my breakfast. I'm going to make a choice about how I relate to people or the sleep or the food or the physical activity I do. It's a promise that we make to ourselves. Consciously, on the conscious level. I, I think that that's, that requires, that's a requirement before anything else. But to make that commitment, um, also I think there's some underlying elements too, and that's to have hope. And unfortunately, the traditional medical system, the way in which we're given hope is that we believe that there's going to be a pill I'm hopeful that science will come up with a cure, a pill. What if Pfizer or Upjohn or Wyeth announced that they had a vaccine that could prevent 90% of all heart attacks? Would you get one? Yes. Yeah. But the sad truth is 90% of all heart attacks never have to happen in the first place. Wow. We don't require. Vaccines are not required. It's the choice. It's the commitment that we make to ourselves. One of the things that, that, that comes up for me when you talk about that, and when we talk about that, is that most of us would prefer to have control over how our health journey plays out. We would prefer it. And I think that, that um, we've ushered in a period of lots of talk about food and lots of talk about exercise. and boils down to many times people having the um, the vision to know how to shift their habits, change their habits, change their beliefs, take baby steps. So if, if patients, if individuals prefer to have control, what's the resistance about? Why is the authority so easily given over to the historical doctor-patient relationship in terms of the authority piece? Uh, Dr. Andrea, you, you may actually be in a, as good a position to answer that as anyone. What I, what I see, the term is used, um, uh, it's called ambivalence. And ambivalence is a state where I, I, I want to change. I, I want to quit smoking. Um, I know that it's gonna, going to be better for my heart. I know that I'll be able to breathe better. But you know what? That cigarette calms my nerves. 
I feel better when I have that cigarette. Or it helps control my appetite. Now, you know, if I stop, I might put on five or 10 pounds, whatever it is. So we want to change and we don't want to change. And I think that's the truth with control too. I want the control, but, and whenever we hear that word, but, uh, that's the clue for us. I want the magic. I want the control and I want the magic. I do want that pill. I want that pill that says, no, you will not get Alzheimer's. And I know we're going to be talking about that as well, but I want the secrets. I want the secret of youth. And I believe that Dr. Greg has a good amount of that, that we can't wait for him to keep sharing with us. Wait a second. There is something that's a little bit magic. And that's that, you know, the old adage, nothing succeeds like success. Right. And so we go back to one less cigarette a day or one more green vegetable a day, there seems to be some uh, sense of confidence building that really does need to occur in order for habit change to take root. I just wanted to say there was an insight that you reminded me of, or actually a, an experience long ago, that I had a client who was literally dying uh, of uh, congestive heart failure, and he was continuing to smoke. And we were about the same age. We were in our 50s. And when I explored it with him, and he was happily married, and he had a family and a successful business, he said, I can't give up smoking because my cigarettes are my best friends. Right. And, and I'll never forget yes, that. Yes, and that's so true. And I think another element that you just identified is that we don't want to deprive ourselves, right? That's why we are not committed to the action that we know ultimately is best for us. But I don't want to deprive myself of having no wine. I don't want to deprive myself of not, you know, having a little piece of chocolate cake because I feel I um, deserve that, and it makes me feel good. So that's another thing. There's a lot of good. There's a lot of good words there. Yeah, yeah. You know, <clears throat> I ask folks um, up front when we're sort of doing intake work how they would rate their their overall health, and I will tell you that um, since I've been doing um, healthcare and preventive aging medicine, and I ask that question, I would say that uh, probably. 80 plus percent of the folks who answer that question say, my, my health is good to excellent. And then we go down the list and say, well, are you on any medications for anything? Yes. Um, I'm on, you know, a blood pressure pill, a cholesterol pill, a pill for my, um, my diabetes, et cetera. So you have diabetes, high blood pressure, high cholesterol, but you said your health is good. Mm. Well, yes, as long as I take those pills, my blood pressure is normal according to my doctor, my cholesterol is normal. And, and so we've fooled ourselves um, into thinking that's all we have to do, that I'm in good health. I'm thinking like, why are you even coming to see me then? Right. Um, when in fact, all we're doing is treating a symptom. It's like uh, your, your cell phone. If you turn off the, um, the ringer, you'll never know if someone's calling. And when we take a pill to stop the pain or to lower the blood pressure, we never know that the disease is still there. We've just shut off the ringer. That's a beautiful, that's a beautiful metaphor and a really good way to describe that. Um, I have, a, I have a, a curiosity, Dr. Gregg, and that's that 
in the past couple of months, I would say I have more people in my life as clients or as friends that have gotten diagnosed with Hashimoto's disease, which is thyroid dysfunction. Mm -hmm. Can you kind of talk a little bit about why this diagnosis has, has become so primary? What, what has happened in the medical field that people are so alert to now Hashimoto's disease as an autoimmune? Yes, uh, that's the word right there, um, autoimmune. Our bodies are recognizing our, ourselves as being foreign invaders, etc. But let's look at it at a broader, a broader scale. All autoimmune disorders, look at, um, you know, most asthma, which in many cases is an autoimmune disorder. It's increased over 200%, you know, in the last decade. Wow. All autoimmune diseases are. In fact, um, it's, it's a symptom of a change in our eating habits and our lifestyles, our environment, the things that are, you know, triggering constant inflammatory responses, for example. So you can look at almost any immune disorder or autoimmune disorder, and it's a result of, of our choices. The foods that we eat are, I mean, if you want to start at the very ground let's, zero. The let's, let's tell us about the food. Yes, what should we be eating? What should we be eating right now? Or what should we be alert to in the foods that yes. we farm yes. and the foods that we purchase? Yes. Well, every, uh, there's a different answer for everyone, right? We're all unique. There's no one right answer for, for everyone. But when it comes to things like um, inflammatory disease, which, by the way, is the root cause of, of most heart disease, and it's one of the major contributing factors for Alzheimer's disease, and even things like osteoporosis and obesity and diabetes, just to mention a few. Yes. Well, let's go back to our early days as humans when we were, you know, living mostly outdoors and depending on, on the environment or food and shelter. And our first line of defense, our very first line of defense is inflammation. If you cut yourself, you want to be able to stop the bleeding. If you get a sliver in your hand, you want your uh, immune system to have an inflammatory response so that you don't die. Um, and, and, and so we need that. But when those situations are gone, we want our immune system to subside. Our, our foods have a large role in regulating how that happens. One of the precursors to the inflammatory agents in our body, oftentimes eicosanoids, leukotrienes, there's a lot of fancy names for them, come from omega-6 essential fatty acids, which um, today are in most foods that people eat. Processed vegetable oils make up, you know, uh, corn oil, sunflower oil, safflower oil are huge sources of um, omega-6s. Omega-3 fatty acids, which most people are familiar with, fish oil, for example, is a precursor to the development of most of these sort of anti-inflammatory agents in our body. And we need some of each. We should have a balance of maybe one-to-one one or two-to-one of the omega-6s. But you know what the average is in the United States today? No. 
20 to 25 times more omega-6 than omega-3. Oh. We are generating an inflammatory wow. response just by changing our eating habits today. We are actually pouring oils into our body, uh, fats into our body. That are rancid. That become rancid. rancid. Yes. Yes. That's a slightly different um, issue here. We need oils. We need fats. We have to have omega-6 fats. Otherwise, we would die. Um, But we also need omega-3s. And we need these two in in a ratio of balance. And that's where, you know, things get out of line. Second, um, foods that are very, very rich in, um, you know, refined carbohydrates, anything that raises your blood sugar, will actually shift and promote formation of these pro-inflammatory agents in in your body. Um, So those are to be avoided, I mean, or limited. Refined carbohydrates. Right. Yes. You know, nature gave us... Um, complex carbohydrates in fruits and vegetables. It wasn't until about 10,000 years ago when we realized that we could carry a bag of seeds with us, you know, as a migratory people and plant and grow food and eat it, that we started seeing things like dental decay and obesity and um, uh, diabetes and so forth begin to show up in in humans. But there are other sources as well, and it could be in in the uh, protein sources. Uh, you know, back in when I was a young boy in the in the early '50s, my grandfather up in northern Wisconsin had a a farm, and he he had cows and pigs and chickens, and and they were all grass fed, and they were all organic, and they were all free range. And he died at the age of 99 um, as a, a healthy, vital guy. But today, that same beef and those chickens are now grain fed. Um, they're given antibiotics and, and hormones, but the grains themselves are causing the, those food sources to be rich in something called arachidonic acid, which makes us inflamed. Talking about the agents, what else is, is involved in proactive aging? And of course, making food choices is always the thing that we first start speaking about because we Again, we can be in somewhat control, but here's another place that we can be in control, and that's in terms of renewing ourselves on a daily basis or on a nightly basis. Can you tell us a little bit about your perspective there? You mean sleep. A third of our life um, should be engaged in renewal and recharging. This is where our bodies um, regenerate, It's where we detoxify. It's where we secrete hormones. It's, um, in fact, I know you're maybe going to ask about things like Alzheimer's. A good night's sleep is an important, a very, very crucial role in preventing Alzheimer's disease. Excellent to know. Tragically, we're in a, a time where sleep is a result of a pill that we take at night. And what that does is it alters um, some of our sleep cycles that are crucial for renewal, particularly stage four sleep, where we're um, doing some cell regeneration and hormone secretion, in many cases gets blocked or doesn't occur in in a natural um, healing format. So, you know, learning to change our our habits of um, 
our sleep time, our wake time. Electricity is one of the reasons that we've screwed ourselves up because we're no longer going to bed with the sun and getting up with the sun like my grandfather did on the farm. Now we have electric lights and TVs and, and smartphones that keep us up to, to all hours and don't allow us to, to shut down. Don't allow our pituitary gland to even produce melatonin, which is, you know, as you know, one of the agents that we need, a hormone for, for, for sleep because um, our, our eyeballs are connected through our nerves to the pituitary gland and inhibit that that process. So then we end up finding ourselves taking melatonin, thinking that, that maybe that will help us to sleep. And by the way, melatonin is, is the most important um, antioxidant for your brain because it's the only one that really crosses the blood-brain barrier. So it's not just for sleep, it's to actually pr pr protect your brain from oxidative damage, DNA damage, and all the other nasty things that occur. And, and what uh, is that uh, available? What do we find melatonin in? Well, your body produces it naturally. Um, and, and that's what you really want to focus on. So, you know, before you go to bed, you don't want to be having those bright lights glaring in your eyes, right? You want to have some calming down time in there. Have your sleep chamber non-distracting for yourself. You know, create that dark environment. It should be for sleep or intimacy, but not for, you know, sitting in bed with your smartphone um, and, and looking at the news that's going to stress you out anyway. Have a, a similar wake-up time, similar sleep time. Um, you know, when we goof up our circadian cycle uh, by all hours of up and down, awake and asleep, uh, we're not going to be able to uh, regenerate. I really want to make a comment about that connection between the eyes and the pituitary gland and the production of melatonin. That I, I really think that if people understood that calming the eyes is so key to creating a pre-existing or a pro-rest or a pro-sleep cycle, that we might find more willingness to comply with that because even taking it out of the out of the eyes and into the melatonin can sometimes kind of trigger people to want a melatonin pill you know melatonin mindset but the kind of melatonin that's produced by quieting the nervous system in the ways that you're suggesting in terms of the complete darkness the non-distracting the hour or two before one intends to go to sleep those are critical times in terms of brain health. Right. Well, I do want to get to the topic of Alzheimer's. It is so important, and it's on all of our minds and everyone's mind. And then I want to hold number three and four and more secrets to staying young and proactive aging for the seminar that we'll be talking about in just a little bit, where Dr. Greg will be one of the power panelists. So let's talk about Alzheimer's. Uh, tell us, um, Dr. Greg, what is what are the newest findings? What should we be alert to? How do we prevent it from happening? Bibi, can I ask you a question? You may. Why do you care? Oh, because I don't want to get it. Why? I don't want to find myself in that state to where I'm semi-consciously aware of what's happening in my life. I want to be fully present at all times or not present. 
So never mind if your body's in great shape, but if you're not able to be engaged or connected to the world, what's the point? Right. And, and you're right. Right. Surveys show that, uh, that adults over 50, um, the greatest fear that we have health-wise in the United States is losing your mind. Now, there, there are many forms of dementia, and Alzheimer's being the most common one, the most prevalent. Currently in the United States, there are 5.7 million adults with Alzheimer's. Wow. Within the next 20 years, that number is project, projected to hit $14 million. 14 million people. Mm-hmm. 14 million people. Mm-hmm. Thank you. We're spending $277 billion right now treating it. In 20 years, it's going to be $1.1 trillion. So any, quote, health care, which actually is a sick care system, will, will, will fall apart under that. It's also a completely fatal disease. There's no cure for it. In fact, there's no real treatment for Alzheimer's disease. All the research that's been done to date on Alzheimer's has been trying to eliminate some things in brain tissue, um, beta amyloid plaque, um, uh, neurofibrillate tangles, things that are sort of strangulating our neurons, the, the brain cells. And we've been trying to find ways to get rid of it. But the most current research is suggesting that those things that are showing up in the brain were actually a protective response that the brain was, was putting into our system in response to the true causes. And we believe now that there are sort of three general categories of causative um, relationships with, with Alzheimer's. The first being one we've already t- touched on, and that's inflammation. Inflammation that can come from either dietary changes or from chronic stress, which increases inflammation, or from chronic infections like um, gingivitis, periodontal disease, peptic ulcer disease, other organisms that are overtaking our system, or imbalances in the bacteria that reside in our gut, which are part of our, in 80% of our immune system is regulated by our, quote, microbiome. So inflammation and dealing with inflammation is probably the most important first step we could take. The second sort of general category of causative agents for Alzheimer's today is believed to be the lack of the sort of nutrients and other supportive agents for um, maintaining um, neuron health in the brain. So that would be dietary um, insufficiencies. And by the way, we're an overfed but undernourished country. Yes, Um, yes. So we're, and, and by the way, virtually every drug and medication today causes nutrient deficiencies as well. So the more we drug ourselves up with pills to cover symptoms, we're also making ourselves more um, malnourished. Also, hormone imbalances and insufficiencies are, are fall within that category of you know, nutrient and support. And the third would be, um, and maybe not as um, common yet, but that would be toxins like um, you know, mercury and lead and, and other toxic agents um, that can uh, cause that, that protective response to occur. So I'm pretty sure that continuing to struggle to find a drug that eliminates beta amyloid pack, uh, beta amyloid, um, will not be a successful venture and has not paid off at all. 
the, the, the secret is prevention. It's prevention. And prevention is, you know, over 90% of all cases of Alzheimer's never had to happen. That's astounding to me. That, that's like, I have to take a breath when you say that, that we have that much. And that takes me to what you were saying, Andrea, about control, wanting to control. We have that control, right? But 90% didn't have to happen. And the first piece about that, and I think the, the piece that could be hopeful for the future, certainly for future generations, because the generation that's coming up into the later ages right now has been a generation exposed to antibiotics, exposed to taking a pill for this, that, and the other thing, is, is what you just said in enumerating the root causes, is for us to, at least for starters, to be aware Yes. And once we're aware, that leads to curiosity. Right. And once we're curious, we can ferret out and make combinations and, and choose behaviors that can really be proactive in terms of our health. Dr. Greg, thank you. But before you go, just for a moment, please tell us everywhere we can find you on your website, and you may want to spell the name to us, and anywhere else that our listeners can connect with you. Thank you, Bibi. The website is uh, renaissanceaging.com, and renaissance is spelled R-E-N-A-S-C-E-N-C-E, aging, A-G-I-N-G.com. My business phone number is 520-229-1900. And we'll, and we'll be sure to write that out in our show notes and you can find that in our blog on boomgoddessradio.com and thank you for joining us this was very delightful and for all the inspiration that you have shared with us much more to come thank you how do you keep yourself healthy or in check and what are your favorite methods for being proactive in your aging process? What's your take on proactive aging? Write to us, please, at boomgoddessradio.com or find us on Facebook under Boom Goddess. We love hearing from you. So Dr. Greg talks a lot about proactive aging, right? That's his main theme. Um, what does it mean to you uh, two ladies? What is proactive aging, Jennifer, to you? Well, that's a very interesting question. Both of my grandmothers live to be almost 100 years old, and we sometimes wonder why years ago they were so much healthier. But I guess the food was healthier. From everything that I've read, they didn't have the pesticides then that we have now. And the animals were fed very differently than they are now. So there's a lot of factors. And we used to go to sleep with the, as soon as it got dark and we rose with the sun. When and was that? In the 1800s when yeah. that happened? Uh -huh. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Just Back in the day. Because <laughs> Back in the day. Right. Back in the day. Even, even probably before the invention of um, penicillin. You know, in those days where 
it was it was actually quite different. But we went to sleep with the with the darkness, and we rose with the sun. And the labor that we did during the day in order to survive took care of exercise. These guys didn't go to the gym. Well, for me, proactive, just the word itself, means that you take some action. Action is taken. So you're aging in a certain way, but it's not letting go and just letting the world or the environment control how you age, but it's really being a participant in that evolution. And the word is also the responsibility is on us. Yes. And that means we think about things before they happen to us. We make associations between our diet and our the way we use our body to handle stress and to burn and to burn the fuel that we've taken in. So I I think the proactive part just means that we have responsibility for thought and action. Right. And there are in many different areas we can be proactive, right? Uh, Basic things like self-care and using our body, uh, the use of our body. How do we care for it? Uh, Do we factor in a half an hour walk every day? Do we factor in, um, like Jennifer was saying, examining the labels on the food that we consume? Um, What actions? are we taking individually to really make this aging process be uh, a growth process, right? You know, I think that you and I could definitely go through our day almost minute by minute with the habits we've inculcated and the things that we do and things that consume our minds and share some of those because they're quite proactive. And I'm not nearly as active as the two of you are. I have a treadmill at home, and I try and get on it for 30 minutes, five, 30 minutes a day, five days a week. That doesn't always happen. That's your intention. That's my intention. And I, I know it works. You know, I put great music in my ears, and I know it works. My doctor tells me, go outside, much like you have have said Andrea to me. That helps me tremendously. Um, I love doing that. It is a uh, tool, a filter, a a fuel uh, that really helps me uh, get clarity and I feel physically better. I think being outside is like so critical. And we were talking before the show about what things can be done that don't involve an investment of money. And I guess the most basic of all of them is to understand that there are so many different forms of breathing that can reach different parts of our body. For instance, if we're having pain in our ankle, we can envision our ankle and then use the command, breathe into that ankle. Obviously, the easiest place to breathe into is into our chest and into our abdomen. But we can also reach deeper than that into our reproductive organs. We can reach into our joints. The combination of vision and breathing is excellent. You're absolutely right for pain. We have so many friends in in town that are really very active physically. And then from time to time, I see them with um, crutches. I see them with their legs bandaged up, and I'll ask them, girl, what happened to you? And they'll say, well, you know, I was running, or I was... At yoga, which I, which which, 
I understand it's really good. I've never experienced it, but I understand it's really wonderful. And I understand BB loves to do the Zumba, Zumba thing. Oh yeah, baby! And that's very that's very exciting. And my sister does Zumba, but injuries. See, that's the one thing that I'm concerned about. I I don't want to be injured. I don't want to. I don't want to get get injured trying to get well. So now, is there a for someone like me who wants to move the body, but doesn't want to injure the body? What's what's the best thing to do? Dance or just well, walking? Well, I, th- I think it's anything, but the the key is consciousness, not so much the movement. And it's always good to know that we're not in it alone, right? I mean, in addition to our friends and uh, business associates, we also have, in, in addition to the medical doctors and holistic doctors, there are health coaches that work with people. And I'm so eager to read a note that we received from one of our listeners on that very topic. So, um, a listener writes, some of my friends are talking to health coaches. What can I expect if I sign up with one? What kinds of things can they help me with? Can they give me medical advice? How are they different from my primary care physician? If I pursue one, will I offend or find myself at odds with my own doctor? Signed, Needing More, Austin, Texas. Dear Needing More, you bring up a really important point. It's important to know that in the past decade, there has risen a great number of educated health coaches. And if you want to talk about expense, they range in expense from maybe $25 a session, possibly all the way up to $200 a session. But the other thing about it is that so many of them, while they're in training, do free health coaching. It's part of the program that they've signed up for. So be aware that if there's a health coaching program somewhere in your state or in your city, you can find out and and become uh, a uh, consumer of somebody who's in training. Well, as you said earlier, Dr. Andrea, it could be a girlfriend. Who's, who has more information about it than, than you do. And she or he can walk you through the process and, and help you, and you don't have to pay anything at all. But maybe a good cup of tea and a lunch once in a while. Well, definitely. There's always somebody who's... I remember once I had an ovarian cyst, and I got names of a number of people, and what did they do, and how did they take care of it? And I created this list called the Ovarian Sisterhood, where people had experiences that I didn't have, and I just interviewed each of them very carefully and made my own decision based on that. So usually, and this is one of the wonderful things about being part of a woman's network, as we are, we can put out there what we're looking for and does anybody know. And as long as you don't follow the experiences, if it's gospel, but keep an open mind, be curious, and definitely ask more than one person and do your own research and then check it out with your primary care physician. Well, I love the idea that uh, our, our wonderful Supreme Court Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg has her exercise guy coming into her into her um, chamber every day. She's 85 years old, 
and she's lifting weights and she's in, well, she's had her, her, her uh, challenges with health, but she's in physical sh- shape. She's making sure that she's okay. And I, I, I love that. So you don't have to, you don't have to be young to do this. You can be any age. But I think, you know, we've got some members of our community that, that we love that started out at 17 and now they're 70 and their bodies are in great shape because their bodies are accustomed to it. So for for those of us that started out late in terms of the exercise game, uh, we have to know that it does work. You have to do it a little slower, but it does work. And Slow I, is not a problem. Right. And I find that one of the greatest gifts that we can give our partner, our spouse, or our partner is how we take care of ourselves. Uh, that, to me, is a really important factor in a re- in a relationship. And I um, really look at couples as an example who do that because it is... Uh, a basis almost for the relationship when they can inspire each other uh, and activate each other and even do things uh, together. Um, but that to me is one of the greatest gifts. And that's care comforting. Of our own body. It's comforting too to know, you know, it's, it's a way of saying, I'm committed to you. I'm going to stay as healthy and as strong as I possibly can because the minute I'm not, it's going to wear on you. One of the things that Dr. Greg talks about is the importance of the patient knowing what their condition is, what they desire, of being an educated patient, right? That's such an important thought process. It is, and it's it's very empowering, if we could use that word, because it really, once again, puts the responsibility back on us to track things. I recall having a friend who wound up having skin cancer, and when I asked her how long she had noticed the uh, eruption as it was on her face, what she said was, well, she noticed it a couple of years ago, and then it went away, and then she noticed it again. She didn't act on it quickly enough. And so what happened is that she had to have the Mohs surgery which really dug around and, you know, they have to clean the margins. And, of course, it's the kind of thing that the sooner you identify it, the better off you are. That's that's one way. Is really a lot of times people say, well, I don't want to be a hypochondriac. Well, men appear to be like more like that, right? Lax. Lax, right? Uh, But no, we're finding that it's true for women. We have a dear friend, Susan, who was going crazy with activities and getting symptoms like you cannot believe. And then it turns out she was having a heart attack all this time. But she kept postponing a postponing the visit to the doctor because she had things to do on her calendar. So it's like, you know what? Let's be awake, people. Let's be awake to our own symptoms. We cannot get too busy to, to not notice what's going on with our bodies. Well, that's the other reason why it's good to have a buddy that we talk to on a regular basis about all those things that maybe some people would even be reluctant to talk to their doctors about. But it's very important to have conversations with friends who can keep track. Like often I'll have a friend who will bring up a symptom and she'll not remember that she had that symptom 
years ago, and I remember saying, I remember you had this checked out in the year 2005. And she's like, I did? And I'm like, yes. And so she's reminded because I'm her buddy when it comes to talking about health things. Maybe with all these devices, we can have in our notes section, we can have health in there and just make notes to ourselves. I think that's a brilliant idea. And date them so that if you get a little bump on your back and it's January 3rd and it gets bigger in March, then you you have a record as to when you first saw it and how big it was. And you can be intelligent when you do see your doctor. You can then say, you know, when when you found it and when it started. And another piece is to really write in a journal. That's another way to do it. And and I date my journals by month. So at least I can think to myself, was it winter? Was it summer? Where am I likely to find it? And of course, Bibi will tell you that you can certainly search a word or a phrase if you keep your journal online. I mean, not online, but if you keep it in, in, in documents. So that's another way to do it. But the best is to make the list the day before you go in to see the doctor. So you have the list right there in your phone or on a little piece of paper. The body is a wonderful instrument. It does tell you. It it, it gives you warning signs, and we should pay attention. Uh, So we've talked about several different things now. One thing that kind of stands out in my mind, too, and it seems that uh, as we age, that sleep is not always an element that comes easy to us, that sometimes we know that our body needs, I don't know, six, seven, or eight hours, but we we keep waking up at night, we don't fall asleep for a long time, we get up too early. Our body is really affected by that, right, Dr. Andrea? And, you know, we loved what Dr. Petersburg, what Greg said about that. Yes, we do need, and we need more than we think, number one, seven to eight hours a night. Uh, do you need more as you grow older? I mean, does does a 25-year-old woman need less than, than older women do? I think they may function better with less, but that doesn't mean it's ideal. Okay. Uh, in, in talking about the sleep aids that people use, uh, Dr. Greg pointed out that it interferes, sleep aids, particularly Ambien, interferes with stage four sleep, which is very important sleep. I'm wondering if that's the sleep that is dream-related, but the sleeping act is a cleansing of the brain. And he was mentioning that if we don't clean the brain, we're likelier to develop some of the symptoms that we're frightened of, which is the big A, you know, and it's not Andrea. (laughs) (laughs) Alzheimer's. Alzheimer's disease. So interesting to listen to that episode again and kind of tune in to what he's saying is so important about sleep. And there's a whole science to sleep, and we have some friends and colleagues who specialize in that. But the biggest, most important is just like what we do with babies, is having a bedtime and trying to, not trying because that's not a behavior, but going to sleep at around the same time every evening and waking up around the same time every morning trains the body in sleeping. It, it, it builds a habit. And like everything else, sleep is a habit. Do either of you nap? 
It, napping is something that I've only embraced relatively lately in life. Meditation is one of the things that can simulate the benefits of a nap. So if we can meditate for 20 minutes in the afternoon, that's a that's a good thing if we can't actually nap and fall asleep. Very often when you meditate, you're quieting the body down so much that you might actually fall asleep for a minute or two. And it's been my experience that that's rejuvenating and, and renewing. Well, again, I think that when the body calls for it, it makes you just um, sh- shut it down. The other day I, I came home from, um, from being out uh, most of the afternoon and I was just exhausted. I mean, I was exhausted like it was 10 o'clock at night. It was 3 o'clock in the afternoon. And I did go to bed. I mean, I got in the bed. I didn't sit in a chair and slept for like 90 minutes. And I felt so much better when, when that was over. I was a little embarrassed. I said, oh, my God, am I getting old? Am I going to need to be taking these naps in the afternoon? But it felt good. I think that a lot of times when people are you know, in their late 90s, it's not even that they want to take a nap. They almost have no no choice but to close, close eyes and drift off. And uh, actually, that's a whole other conversation about how that gets us ready for leaving the planet, even. You know, as very, very, very elderly people will spend more time in the sleep zone until the end. Well, Dr. Gregg said, we can't go back to make a new beginning. We can begin to make a new ending, which I thought was just a wonderful line because that tells me that it's never too late to start. You know, it's just never too late to start. Uh, On a lighter note, uh, the other day on the news, they talked about a Good Samaritan. He was in South Carolina, and it was a cold, cold, snowy day, and he passed by two lovely Girl Scouts who were selling cookies, and he decided that he, they were just shivering, and he decided that he was going to buy all of their cookies. So he bought five, I think 500 boxes or $500 worth of cookies so that the girls could go home. Well, I thought that was such a, a wonderful story, and then... Yesterday, I read a a story about the gentleman who was the Good Samaritan. And you know the old expression, no good deed goes unpunished. Well, he was a drug dealer. He He bought all of the Girl Scout cookies with drug money. So he's now in jail. But he still helped out the Girl Scouts. For more information, visit our website, boomgoddessradio.com, and follow us on Facebook, Boom Goddess. We'd love to hear from you. Your interest powers our programs.